0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by McKinsey & Company, a global management consulting firm helping organizations across the private, public, and social sectors create the change that matters most to them. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Cecilia Rouse, chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisers, and John W. Rogers, Jr., co-CEO and chairman of Aerial Investments, Join Washington Post Live to discuss the impact of the racial wealth gap on Black communities and solutions to promote economic mobility. Let's listen.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live and another in our series on race in America. Today, we're taking a closer look at the impact of the racial wealth gap on Black Americans and ways to promote economic mobility with perspectives from both the public sector, meaning government and the private sector. And to start things off, we're gonna focus on the public sector first. Please welcome Cecilia Rouse. She is the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, the first black official to lead the council. Uh, Dr. Rouse, Chair Rouse, thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live.
0: You're welcome, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: And it's the battle of the bookcases here. Uh, just to th- <laughs> throw that out there. So, in the opening slide, as we um, as we showed a, a statistic from the Center for American Progress, and that is the median wealth of white households in 2019 was 189,100 dollars. For Black Americans, Black households, just 24,100 dollars. How did COVID-19 not only widen this gap, but sort of illuminate this gap for all to see.
0: Well, as as your as the premise of your question that bakes in is these gaps existed before the pandemic, but what we know in this pandemic, it has disproportionately affected communities of color. If we go back over a year ago. You know, the unemployment rate for African-Americans and for Hispanics was like 19 percent, 17 percent, much significantly higher than that for white Americans. Uh, And that at the same time, African-Americans and Hispanics were in the essential workers and were often on the front line. And so the pandemic also disproportionately affected those communities. Meanwhile, because we had to power down our economy. Uh, it meant that those who weren't getting a regular paycheck, it made housing more precarious. It meant uh, if you didn't have a adequate internet connection, your children's schooling was endangered. So this pandemic, because it affected every corner of our economy, every corner of our society, really did lay bare the inequities that have existed in our economy for quite some time. So then, Dr. Doctor- terms oh, of sorry.
1: hmm uh, so given all of that, how is the administration addressing the structural inequities that you're just, you're just talking about in housing, entrepreneurship, uh, and other areas?
0: So this administration is committed to building back better. And my interpretation of that is not only do we want to build back past this pandemic, But it's not just good enough to get back to where this economy was in February of 2020. We know then that there were these inequities, these structural inequities. We have to do better than that. And so the Biden-Harris administration is committed to an all-of-government approach, which means it's kind of soup to nuts. Yes, there are individual programs. So there are initiatives in housing, initiatives to address, um, redress the way that uh, houses are assessed uh, they tend to be assessed lower in predominantly Black communities than in predominantly White communities. Um, there are initiatives in entrepreneurship in education, but the part that I that I believe is most important is that it, we're paying attention. It's an administration that understands that many of these policies have been baked in, and that we can't just assume that uh, by you know spending a little bit more government money uh, that is gonna affect all communities equally. It's really put a focus on saying, where are the places where we can put and and make some significant progress and let's make investments there. So uh, one small example that I will just highlight that follows from the American Rescue Plan is in the American Rescue Plan, there was an expansion uh, and extension of the child tax credit. It It made it more generous. And one way in which it made it more generous was by making it refundable. So even if you didn't owe any taxes to the federal government, you would be able to receive some money back through the child tax credit. This is so important. It has the potential uh, to make a significant dent in child poverty will disproportionately impact uh, uh, um, African-American families. Uh, the president has proposed as part of the American Families Plan that this be continued and that because we understand that that will be an important way to give families the resources they need to be able to take care of their children because we know that poverty begets poverty. And so if children can grow up in families with more resources, that then they will do better in school and they'll have more successful um, adulthoods as well. It also gives the parents some resources to balance work life if they need to do it to uh, to hire more childcare or to have better food on the table, to fill in around the edges to make their lives somewhat easier. So that is one small example, but in every agency, there are initiatives to try to look, where are there gaps between Blacks and Hispanics, Native Americans and whites, and what we, can we do to make them better?
1: You know, there's a phrase you used just a moment ago, disproportionately imp- impact Black families. Uh, and one another area where we see something like that happening is in the realm of student debt. Um, NAACP President Derek Johnson has said, and this is a quote, you cannot begin to address the racial wealth gap without addressing the student loan debt crisis. Um, he also, um, in the Washington Post story from earlier this month, the story points out that although uh, President Johnson, uh, Derek Johnson of the NAACP applauded President Biden's focus on home ownership as a way to build wealth, Johnson said many African-Americans would not qualify for the necessary loans because of a high debt-to-income ratio. So my question is, does the administration need to do more on student loan debt?
0: Student loan debt has become a big problem in our country. I I personally, I, I study higher education as an economist, I believe that student loans have an appropriate place as part of our financial aid portfolio, but it's really important that students understand what they're taking on when they take on those, those student loans and that that obligation, and that they use them in the right kinds of programs. Uh, and so I, I believe we understand that it has become a huge burden. The president is committed to finding ways to improve our income-based repayment programs. Those can work much more, be- they can work much better. Um, uh, he believes very strongly in um, uh, debt forgiveness for those who go into the public sector. And he has said that uh, if Congress delivers a, 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 a bill that cancels debt for some, for some, of, for some students, uh, that he will sign it. So this administration is committed to uh, helping students with, in, uh, t- with their student loans, um, uh, even though they do have an important place in our financial aid system. And, and we recognize this, a higher education is such an important investment, I want to say that and emphasize that, that for so many students, that even with their loans over their lifetimes, they will be able to pay off those loans from the increase in their income that they obtained through, because of their schooling. But we do recognize and want to make better and work more effectively the student loan system.
1: So um, one figure that is out there that the president has rejected a couple of several times is this notion that $50,000 of student loan debt uh, should be forgiven, that there are a lot of progressives on the Hill who are pushing the president to do that. Is there, is there a number or the right number that the administration would consider in terms of forgiving student loan debt as a means of... Helping those black individuals and black families close um, their own personal um, wealth gap relative to their peers.
0: Yeah, so again, the President understands and is uh, understands the burden that student loans have placed on individuals through this uh, crisis. We've had there's been a pause on student loan, uh, you know student loan payments. And as I mentioned, the student, the president is committed to having a much more robust income-based repayment program in which individuals would only have to pay, currently it's what, 10% of their income would be capped. He's open to making that even more generous. So he, w- he believes in having uh, a robust system that respects uh, the fact that th- th- this is an important investment but that it's a costly investment for many individuals and he wants to help make that better. I, I also want to just emphasize that President Biden has put forth numerous proposals to help with the cost of college upfront. So, for example, he's putting forward a, a proposal for to make community college free uh, for you know two years of schooling. Uh, he has committed uh, money for HBCUs and minority-serving institutions so that they can reduce the tuition uh, that they're charging for students. So we completely understand how important a higher, edu- higher education is for communities of color and for black students and wanna make that affordable and are looking at a portfolio of, of, of options and ways to address that problem and to make, make college more affordable for all.
1: In, in your own personal history, education, you said earlier education is very, very very important and in your own family, um, and correct me, if, correct me if I'm wrong, your father was the first African-American to earn a doctorate in physics from the California Institute of Technology, uh, uh, only the fifth um, to earn the degree from any American university, which is quite spectacular. Your mom was a a school psychologist. Has that shaped how you view the role of education in promoting economic mobility?
0: Absolutely. My parents were so committed to schooling Um, that they, you know, our our studies was a major focus of everyday life. My parents saved every dollar that they could in order to help pay for our college because they wanted us to be able to go to any school that they could. For my mother, it went back to her father who had three daughters and was driving a used car himself, or a rundown car. And his family said, why are you, you need to drive a better car. Why are you putting those girls through college? but he was so committed to them going to, all three went to Indiana University and graduated. So in my family, education has been the source of of economic mobility uh, and it has brought so much. It's why I study education um, because I wanna understand what are the benefits, what are the costs, how can we ensure that all children have access to a high quality education and can make those kinds of investments for themselves. And for their family, and for their children, because it has brought so much to my my family.
1: Dr. Ross, let me get you on on two issues before before we run out of time. Um, you you've said about reparations in a Bloomberg interview in, back in March. You said, "What's the right way to address it today?" is an open question. And so my question to you is: Is HR forty, which is called the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African-Americans act. Is that the right way to address
0: it? I, well, I think we need to, I, I still stand by the question. I still am not entirely convinced of what is the right way to address it. We know that this country has a history of, of slavery and discrimination, and that has embedded itself in uh, structural inequalities that have to be addressed if we're really going to flourish as a country. Uh, there's no question about that. The right way to make up for those the, that structural history and that racist history, I think is it's not absolutely clear to me as an individual. I welcome any and all proposals uh, to uh, how to do it effectively and fairly. And most importantly, as an economist, I'm interested in what's really gonna move the needle. Uh, and so that we can finally close some of these gaps that have been so persistent and so stubbornly difficult to close.
1: So then it would it would seem to me then a a commission to study and look at and come up with these plans and proposals is something that something that you and or the administration could get behind as sort of an official an official commission, no?
0: Well, I'm going to speak for myself. Uh, I'm an academic, and I believe in having groups of people come together and think of new ideas. So I want to speak for myself here. Um, I believe the president is open to having, hearing ideas that are put on the table, uh, but I don't want to put, to put forward the official administration position. I know the president wants to address these inequalities, uh, wants to do so in a way that really does move the needle, um, and, uh, and, I, and I share that goal.
1: Um, so I can't have the Chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors here and um, not uh, uh, ask this question. And it's one that's on in in our paper. And it's about inflation. Let me just read you the lead to to this story. It says the Federal Reserve expects inflation will climb to three point four percent this year, higher than the central bank's previous forecast, while also projecting for the first time that there could be two interest rate hikes in 2023. Uh, could inflation be uh, a looming threat to the economy, the economic recovery that it seems like we're um, enduring now?
0: This is an important question. Um, and let me I'll give you my perspective on it, which is that we are we are slowly, but surely, and maybe not even so slowly, we are coming out of the greatest de- recession, if not close to a depression, I don't know what the you know if we're technically there, but the greatest recession since the Great Depression. Um, the number of jobs we lost, what, 17, 18 million jobs from last April. And we did that because of a virus. So this was not caused by a typical economic problem in the economy, which is typically how we go into a recession, like the Great Recession in 2008, 2009 but it was caused by a virus which required that we power down our economic activity. Um, We have, we developed vaccines in record time and with the American Rescue Plan, we had the funds to mount a very effective rollout strategy so that in record time um, that we got shots into people's arms. And so people were vaccinated against this virus And importantly, these vaccines turned out to be much more effective than I know I would have imagined back in January. It turns out if you've been fully vaccinated, you're not transmitting, and these vaccines are very effective against the variant. at least so far, we should knock on wood. All of that means, especially with the really fast uh, rollout of the vaccination, is we have gotten back to the semblance of normality really quickly. And uh, when I say very quickly, let's remember, it was just back in April 19th that we open up vaccinations for all adults, and it takes five to six weeks for adults to get fully vaccinated. So we're, what, three or four weeks from most adults having had the opportunity to be fully vaccinated. What that means is that demand has come roaring back. It's come roaring back faster than the Federal Reserve anticipated. It's come back faster than I would even argue most businesses anticipated which means that they are scrambling to find workers. They're also scrambling to put goods on the shelf and to be able to provide because they liquidated their inventories last spring, uh, liquidating often at a loss, and mm-hmm. or they powered down their own enterprises. And so everybody's coming back at once. That is causing supply chain challenges. Uh, on the worker's side, workers now, since we followed a policy of we broke up relationships, people were fired uh, through the pandemic, it means that workers now need to find another suitable position. And there are just weeks from understanding that they can start to get back to normal. Right. So we're th- we seeing uh, the, what I believe is the kind of a reopening of a nearly $23 trillion economy. Uh, that is a normal process. So at the moment, I believe that this inflation is, is temporary, is transitory as the economy works itself back together, as we knit back together. And that is what I believe underlies the Fed's thinking as well. So do I think the inflation we're seeing is a problem? Uh, I don't think it's a problem in the sense that it will become anchored, uh, to use a technical term, and result in a hyperinflation. But I think we will see some elevated prices as the economy gets back to normal.
1: Dr. Rouse, in the 30 seconds that we have left, in closing the racial wealth gap, what's the one thing that you're looking at that would show you that you're being successful, that the administration is being, being successful in closing the racial wealth gap?
0: So wealth happens over time. Um, so I would first look to see whether we have uh, rates of unemployment that look more equal so that we see Blacks participating in our uh, economy at rates similar to Whites. That's the first step I would look at. I would start to look at wages, to whether we see wages, the, the racial gap in wages narrowing. And then in terms of wealth, I would like to see that Blacks are able to buy homes uh, in the, the same kinds of areas as Whites, and for that they can afford the homes, and they can buy homes in the areas where they would like. We know that home ownership Accounts for more than 30% of the black-white gap in wealth. And so I think that will be an important metric as to whether we've created the kinds of policies, the kinds of credit markets and availability so that blacks are able to participate in that in home ownership um, at you know increasing rates as well. So those would be and some the- early signs, but wealth happens over time. It's an accumulation, right, right. Uh, which is why it really is, um, you know, one of those profound. Uh, signs of the health of our economy, because when you have such large and entrenched differences in wealth, that doesn't tell you that at one point in time there was a difference, that tells you that 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 difference has been going on for quite some time.
1: And with that, Dr. Rouse, we're going to have to leave it there. Cecilia Rouse, Chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live.
0: You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure.
1: Coming up, John W. Rogers, Jr., Chair and CEO of Ariel Investments.
2: The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
0: Hello,
3: I'm Otis Rowley III, Senior Vice President for U.S. Equity and Economic Opportunity at the Rockefeller Foundation. I'm excited to have a conversation today with Shelley Stewart III. Shelley is a partner with McKinsey and the head of McKinsey's U.S. Institute for Black Economic Mobility. He's a leader with McKinsey's Private Equity and Principal Investors Practice and has published numerous articles and is a speaker on the topic. Shelley is also on the board of directors at the National Black MBA Association. Shelley, I have some, so many different questions for you, um, but I just wanna kind of kick off with why did you undertake this research and, and why now?
2: Absolutely, Otis, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me. Look, the murder of George Floyd, the continued unfolding of the pandemic, and its disproportionate impact on Black Americans has created a real moment for us to reexamine and reevaluate the thing, the way we think about racial justice. Now, McKinsey's been in this arena for a while. We've been doing work on what I call four wall diversity for a number of years, serving our clients and uh, publishing research. Uh, We thought now, though, was a unique moment for us to extend beyond the four walls of corporate America, which is really important, right? Recruiting more diverse people, promoting them, getting them to the C-suite is a big part of racial justice. But corporations in the private sector play roles far beyond the four walls of their company. And this piece is meant to set the stage for what is it that we can do to truly change the circumstance for black Americans?
3: You know, it's, it's interesting. You you look at the multiple realities that Black Americans face in the economy. Um, I thought the report was just really powerful because it's not a it's not a moral document. It's not an emotional document. You come with data and facts. And so could you talk a little bit more about what is the report about and, and what surprised you most?
2: Absolutely. And this report tries to stick true to McKinsey's fabric and DNA, which is to anchor on economic realities and and talk about the data and what we sought to understand in this research is the black experience and we looked at the black experience through the lens of different roles we play in society we chose five of them for example black americans are workers black americans are consumers black americans are entrepreneurs and we really sought to understand what it's like to be black in each of those roles there were many things that were surprising about this research, but I'll give an example on the worker role. So we found a aggregate wage gap of more than $200 billion between black white workers and white workers. That's both being underrepresented in different occupations and also being paid less in the same occupation. That's a, that's a huge amount of opportunity. What was surprising was that 60% of that wage gap was in just 20 occupations. So less than 5% of occupations made up 60% of the wage gap. And these are things like Black lawyers, Black doctors, Black teachers. We really need more folks in those professions, not only to close the wage gap, but having Black lawyers, Black teachers, Black doctors has downstream implications for the people who use those services as well. And so we were excited about the level of concentration in that it gives us a clear starting point on where to go to address these issues.
3: What do you want business leaders to, to, to take away from this report?
2: Yeah, I, I think there's a number of things in this report that are relevant to private sector leaders. I'll, I'll hit on two to bring it to life. One is, don't neglect the black consumer. While we have income issues that we identified in the worker role, meaning we need to continue to increase the income of black Americans so they can more fully participate. Even today, at current income levels, Black Americans spend almost $850 billion a year across all of your normal consumption categories. That's a tremendous opportunity. And what we also found through some research and talking to Black consumers is that, on average, they're less satisfied. So they're they're less happy with the products and services that are being offered today in many categories. And that presents an opportunity for companies to tailor and to get to know the Black customer in a way that creates a win-win situation. Additionally, there's a huge opportunity for private sector leaders to support Black entrepreneurship and Black businesses. Only 2% of employer firms today are Black-owned, and there's all sorts of latent entrepreneurial energy in the Black community that companies can foster and develop through supply diversity programs. Through direct lending, whether you're a financial institution or, or some other fund, in a way that will build more domestic suppliers and more and more dynamic business environment here in the US, that is a huge opportunity for the private sector. Those are some important steps that, that the private sector can
3: take. But I'm also curious on on the public side, you know, what are some takeaways for for policymakers and, and civil society?
2: Yeah. Policymakers, the 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 Government, whether it be the federal government, state and local governments, play a huge role in facilitating economic mobility for their citizens and it touches almost every aspect of our lives. Let me give two examples which I think are are have been brought into sharp focus most recently with the pandemic. The first is health care. The public sector plays a huge role in designing and implementing policies and things that help to expand access to affordable health coverage for low-income individuals in particular, and of which Black Americans today are disproportionately represented in that bucket. If you look at mortality rates, even pre-COVID-19, the average Black American lives 3.5 years shorter than the average white American. Now, someone may say, oh, 3.5 years. Let me dimension that. If that gap were closed, there'd be 2 million more Black Americans alive right now. That's a staggering figure. The second is on education. The policy design and implementation of the way we fund schools serves to only exacerbate and continue on disparity. If you look at high concentration black school districts, so 75% more, and you compare that to high concentration white school districts, so 75% or more white, you find an $1,800 per pupil funding gap in those black schools. These are decisions that we have made and we can choose a different path. We can choose to invest in a different way and build a more robust and inclusive economy. Shelly, I want to thank you for your time and and thank you for this work. I I know
3: time was limited, but um, I I think it's just so important what what was able to be highlighted in, in this important document. So now I'm going to turn it back over to The Washington Post.
2: And now back to Washington Post Live.
1: If you're just joining us, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome back to Washington Post Live and part two of our conversation on the racial wealth gap in America as part of our Race in America series. We just heard from the public sector with Cecilia Rouse. Joining me now with perspective from the private sector on how to shrink the racial wealth gap in our country, John W. Rogers Jr., Chair and Co-CEO of Ariel Investments. John, great to see you and welcome back to Washington Post Live.
4: Great to be back.
1: So as we just saw in the clip, um, in the intro about the impact of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, um, we saw the impact on your family. Tell us more about your family's connection to Tulsa and what went through your mind as we marked the centennial.
4: Well, I did have the opportunity uh, two weeks ago, along with my daughter, Victoria, to go to Tulsa and to be a part of all of the acknowledgement of what happened during the Tulsa Race Massacre. Our family connection was direct. Uh, My great-grandfather was J.B. Stratford. He owned the Stratford Hotel that was arguably the largest black hotel in the nation. It was extraordinarily successful. It had a cabaret and bars and pool hall. It was a a real celebration uh, there in Tulsa where his hotel was center to everything. Uh, at the same time, my great-grandfather, J.B. Strafford was a very outspoken civic leader, uh, a real leader in the black community and someone who was outspoken when it came to civil rights and economic justice. And so once the race riots happened, and the race massacre occurred, he ultimately was indicted and accused of helping to uh, start the riots, which, of course, was totally false, totally untrue. But it forced him to have to escape undercover and escape Tulsa, to uh, get away from the convention center where he was being held against his will, he made it to Kansas, uh, Independence, Kansas, where he met up with his son, C.F. Stratford, who used his legal skills to stop Tulsa from extraditing my great-grandfather uh, back to Tulsa. Hmm. And my mom, you know, Jules Stratford Lafenton, always told me growing up that she was inspired to become a lawyer because she saw her father use his legal skills to save her grandfather's life.
1: John, what does it mean to you personally to have the nation talk so openly now about the Tulsa race massacre, given that we spent so many decades not talking about it at all, and the fact that so many millions of people uh, learned about it for the first time, either watching um, Watchmen or watching Lovecraft Country? Well, our, our
4: our family has been very, very proud of the recognition and again, very proud of the leadership of our great grandfather. And, you know, are glad to see that America is starting to understand the challenges that we face as African-American entrepreneurs in this country over the 400 years since slavery and Jim Crow and all the other challenges that we faced in our society. So we, we think it's an important part of our, our journey as American citizens for people to be aware and to be able to see viscerally how much was impacted, how much wealth was lost in multi-generations uh, because of what happened in Tulsa and many, many other cities throughout this nation.
1: Well, let's talk about the the, the loss of, of, of generational wealth. I mean, the Tulsa race massacre was a big, big event, uh, but it wasn't the only um, race massacre where com- black communities were completely destroyed and livelihoods were lost. And I'm wondering... Um, if you could talk about how that specifically had an impact on building wealth uh, across generations, um, and, and talk about if you if you know what the Tulsa Race Massacre did in terms of your own family's um, accumulation of, of wealth, what was lost? Do you know?
4: Well, our understanding is that if if my great grandfather's wealth uh, at the time we think was roughly hundred thousand dollars, and if it been invested in the stock market over this last 100 years, and you know it had a kind of reasonable 7% or so return, it would be worth well over $100 million for our many, many, many family members. So you just think about that, uh, just all that wealth and opportunity uh, was just completely lost because of that. And as we've said, this has happened time and time again in this country. Very few of us have had multi-generational wealth Many of you of us, very, very, a few of us have been able to benefit from inheritances. So um, it's, it's just really shocking, you know, what could happen in this country. And, you know, when you think about the white supremacy movement back 100 years ago, you know, those white supremacists couldn't stand to see successful black families, successful black business leaders, people who are outspoken and proud of their accomplishments. Uh, there was this pressure to put us back in our place.
1: So so then, John, um, what are some of the other factors um, that contribute to the persistence of this racial wealth gap in our country?
4: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, there's just so many things. But one of the things we talked, uh, I understand I heard from your prior conversation, um, you know, we have this, this idea that um, corporations continue and major anchor institutions in our community Refuse to do business with black entrepreneurs and continue to this day to have very few African-American leaders in their boardrooms in their C-suites and we all know the data we know how few you know Melody Hobson my co-CEO is the only African-American female chairman of a fortune 500 company Uh, you know she's the chairman of Starbucks Uh, these are just few too few and far between so we need to get corporate America to agree to not only have us in the C-suites, on the management committees of their organizations, have us on the board of directors in more than just the token one spot, and then agree to do business with African-American entrepreneurs in everything that we do in our society. You know, get away from this term of supplier diversity, where you say the black and brown people do the supply chain work, you know, catering and the construction, which are important parts of our economy, and but then leave African-Americans out of the spin where the wealth and jobs are created in the 21st century technology, uh, healthcare, money that's spent on legal services, accounting services, professional services broadly, financial services, hedge funds, private equity, and venture capital. If institutions don't work with African-Americans, and again, in the parts of the economy where there's real growth and profits, um, we're gonna continue to have our wealth gap get larger and larger in this country.
1: Uh, You invoked her name, Melody Hobson, your co-CEO at Ariel Investments. She was here, I believe, back, yes, back in February to talk about a new initiative that you had launched called Project Black, getting into a lot of the things you were just talking about uh, in, that, in that last answer. And John, I'm just wondering, are, are, to talk about policies like discriminatory lending practices, uh, are they part of the problem, uh, part of the obstacle that hurt black ownership, uh, one? And two, do you see those discriminatory lending pra- practices changing?
4: Well, I do believe that we are in a better place today than we were 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, where, you know, it's interesting, my, my grandfather actually helped to argue the case in the Supreme Court, Hansberry versus Lee, that was all about the restrictive covenants that we had here in Chicago, that wouldn't allow us to own homes in certain parts of our community. And as you know, the redlining that went on and the added costs when we did have a chance to buy a home was really extraordinarily damaging and and losing the impact, uh, not giving us the opportunity to create real wealth. So that discrimination that you've talked about, you know, is better than it used to be, but the ramifications of redlining and restrictive covenants of 50, 60, 70, 100 years or more continue to really plague us as we haven't been able to benefit from rising housing prices. You know, here in Chicago, we're the most, one of the most segregated cities in the country. And unfortunately, our real estate has primarily been in parts of our city where wealth has not been able to be uh, really created. Mm-hmm. And because we didn't, you know, he didn't have the opportunities to have homes up on the North Shore or in the Western suburbs where home prices went higher and higher and higher. So a lot of black wealth has been lost through the real estate, but also a lot of black wealth has been lost by the fact that we have not been able to um, fully participate in the parts of the economy where the growth and wealth is being created today. And also we're not being able to even our nonprofits, our universities, our hospitals, our museums continue to give our economic opportunities to their tr- friends or their trustees and the families that are serving on those boards. And we don't have that, those relationships to be able to build our economic opportunity in this country. So it starts with the housing; is a big part of it, but it goes well beyond that.
1: Mm-hmm. One of those areas I want you to get into um, has to do with financial literacy, and Ariel Investments has taken on financial literacy by partnering with schools. Talk about why financial literacy is so important.
4: Well, I think it is. It's, it's critically important. You know, my father taught me about the stock market when I was 12 years old. You know, every birthday and every Christmas after I was 12 he bought me stock instead of toys. And it was maybe $250 worth of General Motors or uh, IBM blue chip stocks. And he let me keep the dividend checks, you know, and he just wanted me to have that exposure. Uh, He'd been a Tuskegee Airman, and he just thought it was so important for his son to get exposed to all the things that white America was exposed to and the stock market being central to that. So, you know, today it's more important than ever financial literacy. If you think about it as we've replaced pension funds in this country with defined contribution plans. Every individual at at their workplace has to be able to get involved in their defined contribution plan, their 401k, their 403B, their 457 plan. They've got to make sure that they're they're maxing out and putting as much money into those programs as possible. And then having the right capital allocation uh, within those programs. You know, how much is in equities, how much are in fixed income, how much are in money market funds. You have to be your own financial expert to be able to be able to Put money away effectively for your retirement. I think that's so critically important. And, of course, we saw during the financial crisis, because of our lack of financial literacy, we got the worst mortgages and these, you know, unethical lending institutions that took advantage of many uh, African-American families because we didn't know always all the right questions to ask. You know, we've not been well-positioned to be our own wealth managers because this country hadn't allowed us to build wealth over these last 400 years. So you you know, you know get to be an expert in, in wealth management when you have wealth to, to manage. But discrimination, Jim Crow laws, again, the remnants of slavery have stopped us from being able to create that kind of wealth, and therefore we're behind. So what we've tried to do at Ariel is just not complain about the pro- problem. We we created a small public school with former Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan uh, roughly 25 years ago called the Ariel Community Academy. It's a public school in the south side of Chicago roughly 500 African-American kids. And all the kids eventually get real money to invest in real stocks, work with our analysts on how to do research, get comfortable in the markets. And if they decide to put money away when they graduate from eighth grade into a 529 program, we match it uh, with $500 to start to teach the young people about the importance of matching. So they'll be prepared for that first defined contribution plan uh, when they get out of college. So um, we think financial literacy is really, really important. Uh, I chaired President Obama's uh, Council on Financial Capability for Young Americans, and the report we gave to the president suggested that we wanted to find ways to get more, how to get more financial institutions to partner with urban public schools and using the model of the Aerial Community Academy, where young people can get real dollars to invest in real stocks and see role models that look like them who, who can pick stocks and help show them the way of how to do that kind of research.
1: You know, John, you and I spoke um, a year ago, uh, and it was just a few weeks after the nationwide protests uh, had erupted over the murder of of George Floyd. And I want to read to you something you told me. You said, this has brought, brought the worst of America onto national television, talking about um, the video of the killing of George Floyd. Made it a worldwide event, and it's brutal. I think the only shining light is that there's some hope now That we can tell our story and more people are listening than ever. And hopefully, this will be an opportunity for us to transform America and get us back on the right track where we can all respect each other, believe in each other, and create equal opportunity for everyone. Um, A year on, do you think, are you satisfied with the progress we've made? And what more needs to be done?
4: Well, definitely not, definitely not satisfied, but we are making progress. We're making real progress. You know, the data is clear. There are more of us, more African-Americans are joining corporate boards. You know, you look at Walgreens here in Chicagoland, where now we have an African-American woman CEO. We have Valerie Jarrett, you know, our good friend who joined the board of Walgreens. Mm -hmm. A year ago, there was none of that, you know? Um, It's just been something that's been transformative that's happened in corporate America. Here in Chicago, our civic committee, which represents our 84 largest businesses, they have a real commitment now to do business across the board using the term business diversity instead of supplier diversity to show that these corporations are open to work with black people in everything we do. That's real progress. And they borrowed from the University of Chicago this concept of business diversity instead of supplier diversity. So you're starting to see real sustained change and opportunity you're also seeing it more in political empowerment where more political politicians are thinking about these issues. You know, our Speaker of the House, Chris Welch here in Illinois, created a legislation that forced all the corporations to be transparent with their board of directors. You know, where there was diversity, where there wasn't. And that put pressure on corporations that were look like 1940s companies to do the right thing. You know, we have leadership now in Congress like Maxine Waters and, and, and Joyce Beatty uh, at the House Financial Services Committee that that, uh, of course, Maxine chairs and Joyce chairs the subcommittee on diversity and inclusion. They're making a profound impact, pushing banks and financial institutions to do the right thing uh, when it comes to working with black owned businesses and making sure we get our opportunities to uh, get the kind of loans and opportunities that we really, really, really deserve. So. It's, it's a much better day today and I think it's going to continue into the future. I think the momentum is there. People get it that we deserve equal economic opportunity and a lot of the challenges that face our urban communities will start to dissipate once we do have real equal economic opportunity in this country.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, John, we've got uh, less than two minutes left, but you, since you brought up corporate boards, I recently interviewed uh, Mark Mason, who's the CFO of Citi, and he gave corporate America a D. D as in David, in its goals to work toward corporate diversity, inclusion, and racial equality. What grade What grade do you give corporate America, and what will it take to get an A? Tell me in, in 90 seconds. Well,
4: yeah, well, I would think that uh, I would probably give corporate America maybe a C, a C a um, C-minus, because they continue to still do too much business is the way they've always done it, and the economic opportunities continue to go to primarily white males. But I, I, I do think that there are some models. You know, McDonald's here in Chicago has a long-standing program where they've worked with black franchisees and have built up large uh, black suppliers for McDonald's. Northern Trust Bank has done, they, they have two African Americans on their management team for the first time. Uh, They're top 10 officers of Northern Trust Bank. Uh, Exelon Corporation has great work. So there are some really terrific role models out there doing things the right way, you know, and having not only senior African-Americans in senior roles and doing business with black businesses and everything that we do, but also putting African-Americans in a position where once you're in these leadership roles, your willingness to speak out and speak up and fight for economic justice is happening more and more and more people, for more and more people. People have heard from John Lewis and understand that when you're in these leadership roles, you have a responsibility to make good trouble and to point out the things that are not right, that are not fair. And I think that is also changing in corporate America. We're getting more fighters in these leadership roles that are gonna make a difference for all of us.
1: John W. Rogers, Jr., Chair and Co-CEO of Ariel Investments. Thank you very much for coming back to Washington Post Live. Great to see you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in. Join us on Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern when my colleague, Jeff Fowler talks with PayPal's CEO, Dan Schulman. Once again, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Thank you very much for tuning in to Washington Post
0: Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.